After Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostles established the church in Jerusalem. As they traveled from place to place, telling others about Jesus, their numbers multiplied and spread throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. This is the story of key believers mentioned in the book of Acts. In the nearby town of Joppa lived a believer named Tabitha, also known as Dorcas. Tabitha was known for doing kind things for others and helping the poor, until one day when she became ill and died. The other believers had heard that Peter was in Lydda, a town not far away, and so they sent for him, asking him to come as soon as possible. Peter asked the others to leave the room. When they had gone, he prayed over Tabitha and told her to get up. Her eyes opened and the others returned to find her alive. There was much rejoicing and the news spread all through the town. Time passed and the apostles continued to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the land. As the church grew, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute the believers. He had the apostle James killed and Peter thrown into prison. But before he could be tried, an angel of the Lord helped him to escape. Once freed, Peter went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many believers were gathered to pray for him. When Peter knocked at the door, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer it. However, when she heard his voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back to the others. Rhoda excitedly told them that Peter was standing outside, but they thought that she was crazy or that it was an angel. As Peter continued to knock, the others joined Rhoda and opened the door. They were amazed and overjoyed that Peter was there, and he told them the story of his escape. The good news continued to spread and be multiplied as the Apostle Paul began his first missionary journey to Cyprus, Galatia, and Macedonia. While in Macedonia, Paul spent the Sabbath at a riverbank outside the city where he spoke to some women who were gathered there. One of these women was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth. As she listened to Paul teach, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what he was saying. Lydia and her entire household were baptized and she invited Paul to stay in her home. Lydia continued to share the good news of Christ with the people of her town and eventually a church was established there. She also continued to host Paul whenever he came around. These women and other believers were essential to the growth of the early church. Their faithfulness helped the apostles continue their missionary work. Many churches were established throughout the region and the good news spread to the ends of the earth. Can we give it up for the Schweitzer Creative Media team, huh? 
Well, this is week six, the final week of our Women in the Bible series, and I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed the Women in the Bible series, so that's the last video that we're going to see of it. And I'm also really excited about the Women in the Book of Acts, so you're either going to be debating on whether my excitement is born from this extra cup of coffee that I had this morning, or the Women in Acts. But go with Women in Acts, because I'm really excited about that. Um, I am Mark McNelly, in case some of you don't know me, I am the Director of Outreach here on campus and leader of the Outreach Ministries, so... Um, very appropriate for me to be bringing a word about the, the book of Acts, the spread of the church. And in the Women in the Bible series leading up to this message, it gave me an opportunity to look back on some women uh, that were very influential women of faith in my life. And I don't know if that's been an experience for you as we've done this series or not, uh, but one was my mother's mother, a deeply devout Catholic woman. German Catholic woman, uh, Grandma Rupsum, and uh, Grandma lived in Evansville, Indiana, and there was a lot of alcoholism in my mom's side of the family, and she was just a stalwart of her faith, and she was so deeply humble. Are you ever familiar with somebody who says, oh, I don't really care where we eat, or I don't care what we watch, and, but you know they really do care where you eat and, and what you're going to watch? Uh, she, she truly meant it. Like, you knew when she said, oh, I, I really don't care. I just want you to be, I want your needs to be met before mine. And that was Grandma Rupsum. And, and this series has given me the opportunity to cherish a lot of those memories she's passed on now. And then on my father's side of the family, there's Aunt Joyce. Now, Aunt Joyce gave her life to Christ in a good Southern Baptist home at the age of eight. She said the sinner's prayer at the end of her bed, and, and she never looked back. She's now plugged into a Methodist church down in Austin, Texas, and she's a disciple maker to the time she goes to meet Jesus. She says, son, you, you don't retire from making disciples. And Aunt Joyce is just a, a deep woman of faith. So um, it's just been great to look back on their lives and realize that even though most of my relationship time with them, I wasn't a believer, became one eight years ago, uh, they were still uh, women of faith that deeply influenced me, and I noticed that. And I noticed that they would say things like, Jesus is Lord and Savior. Have you ever, you know, Jesus is Lord and Savior. Uh, my grandma Rupson was a Southern Baptist, so she would ask people, is Jesus your Lord and Savior, right? And... I wondered to myself, I remember thinking before I was a follower of Jesus, what does that, what does that even mean? Like for Jesus to be your Lord, for Jesus to be your Savior, what does that mean to me personally? I wasn't, he wasn't my Lord and Savior. And I wonder in the church sometimes if we use terminology, if we use phraseology that is a little foreign to people outside the church. Words like fellowship. I never used that word before I became a Christian. Fellowship? You know, me and the guys back in the day, yeah, we had some great fellowship this weekend. You know, just words that we use all the time that people in outside the church just don't use. But then I also talk to people who grew up in the church, and, and even though they grew up in the church and they have that history and, and background of involvement with Christian people, they'll say, they'll look back and they'll say, Man, well, Jesus really wasn't my Lord and Savior until this point in my life. Or I didn't understand what it mean, meant for Jesus to be my Lord until this point in my life. So I wonder if you're with us today and, and maybe Jesus isn't your Lord or your Savior yet. You're here and you're in the right place and the story today is going to, I hope, is going to touch your heart. Or if you've been around the church and you still, this is a term, this idea of Jesus being Lord is a term that needs to, needs to find its way and dig its way down deeper into your life experientially. We're going to get the opportunity to do that. 
Jesus is Lord in our culture doesn't have the same meaning that, and, uh, that it did back at the time that these three women were, were claiming that Jesus was their Lord. In the Roman Empire, uh, the Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities, by this time had started persecuting the church. They had started persecuting and killing Christians. They imprisoned Peter. And what we, what we know from that time was that the Caesar, the Roman king, was thought to be divine. There was, there was this idea that, that Caesar was a son of God. So anytime a Christian would say that Jesus was the son of God, anytime a Christian would say Jesus is Lord, this was a mighty slap in the face to the Roman authorities and the Roman government because they believed Caesar to be Lord. In fact, it was even <clears throat> one of the early martyrs, Polycarp, was asked to say Caesar is Lord or he would lose his life, and he would not do it. So Jesus is Lord, it, it meant something so much more impactful and so much more personal back at the time where these three women were proclaiming Jesus to be their Lord. So what I want to do is I want to look at the three women, and as we go through the stories of the three women, we're going to find that there are three results. So as we look at them, we're going to see that generosity, and we're going to see that joy are two very real and outward expressions of a life lived when Jesus is your Lord. So the first one we're going to look at is Tabitha. And I want to read just one verse from the story in chapter 9. So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes that Dorcas, uh, Dorcas was the Greek, Greek name for Tabitha, had made for them. So when you read the whole passage, you get a, a glimpse of it in that verse, but when you read the whole passage, you see that Tabitha was this beloved woman. She was that saint in the church, and if you've been around the church, you, you know that saint who is just making things for people, visiting people, loving on people, checking up on people. She just, she couldn't get enough of being in relationship and serving the needs of people. In particular, in the early church, she was caring for the uh, widows. So, so her ministry was giving of her time and giving of her abilities. She was making cloaks, making things for the widows. And so we see anytime that you're giving of yourself in a, in a church context, oftentimes it can be categorized in time, talent, and treasure. We don't see from, from here that Tabitha had a lot of worldly possessions or, or material possessions or money, but she had time and she had talent and she gave it. She gave it selflessly. That just the amount of this very short passage, the amount of love and how beloved that she was by those who did life with her. In fact, people were dying, right? People were being persecuted and killed. Others were dying of, of, other, of old age and and yet they didn't send, every single time that happened, they didn't send somebody to Peter or the apostles to, to get a healing, or in this case, a resurrection. For Tabitha, they did. This woman was so deeply loved, and she embodied three aspects of Christian serving that I'd like to point out. The first, obviously, Christian serving is different from serving outside in a secular or worldly perspective because God loved us first. It's not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. All Christian giving, serving is born from being compelled by the love of God. We love because God loved us. The second thing in 
that is distinct about Christian giving is that it, it has a sacrificial nature. It's not serving with our extra time. It's not serving when it's most convenient. It's not serving in a segmented or compartmentalized way. It's, it's, an, it's an aspect of self-sacrificial giving. It's a giving of what we don't have. It's a giving that hurts. And so that's the second aspect. And the third aspect that's distinct about Christian giving is that it's so deeply with the people that we serve. It's relational. We love to talk about with ministry here on campus at Schweitzer and at Church at the Center. And often too many times when you serve those in need, when the church has in the past, when the government does, when we do as individuals, we can tend to do it to those we serve, very, very paternal. We can tend to do it for those that we're serving, very maternal. But Tabitha, the biblical model, is to serve with someone, to come alongside them, to be in relationship with them, for it not to be an inferior-superior relationship, for it not to be a haves and have-nots kind of culture, but for it to be with some places I'd love to inspire you by and, and lift up that that is ha happening is the Coach House is a ministry that's just gotten started here. There's the Coach House um, property, and the three women at the Coach House are serving on Sundays. They're worshiping. They helped serve the Alpha Dinner on Wednesday night. This was an opportunity for us to use property and an asset of the church for the use of the kingdom of God, and we could have sort of just put some women over there and, uh, okay, well, that was a good, good thing to do. That feels good to really help people in need. But that was incomplete, right? And what I've loved seeing is how many of you and, and, and us have reached out and done relationship with them. Another place is Jobs for Life. Jobs for Life is a ministry here on campus that is bringing people in that are having a hard time getting a job, keeping a job, having a career path, all of those things that a lot of us take for granted. And they get a champion, and they get a long process of relationship building and understanding and learning and growing. It's a with ministry. It's a beautiful thing, and it's a biblical model. We see it right here in Tabitha. And the, the final thing that you're going to see a video on later is the life change plan. Uh, we have a partnership with a sober living house transitional program, and we provide a discipleship plan for them that includes mentoring. You'll hear more about that later. But again, with ministry. When you're serving you're serving those in needs, whatever needs they might be. They could be material, they could be emotional, they could be relational. Are you serving with that person? Are you serving to or for them? The second thing uh, that we see in uh, the story of Lydia is a little bit different take on generosity. Lydia's generosity is a little different. If you want to turn to chapter 16, we're going to look at two verses in that story. Verse 15 of chapter 16. She, Lydia, was baptized along with other members of her household, and she asked us to be her guests. Lydia says, if you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. She urged us until we agreed. She wasn't taking no for an answer, right? She had met the risen Jesus Christ, and she was putting the chips in. She was saying, I'm all in. What can I do? I've got a home. We could plant a church there. I could minister to you and the other believers there. This is Lydia's heart. Well, Paul gets arrested. He tended to get in trouble for his preaching. Uh, and then after Paul was released from pr uh, prison, it says, Paul and Silas left the prison. They returned straight to the home of Lydia. 
There they met with other believers, encouraged them once more, then they left town. This was in the town of Philippi, and we know that Lydia's house was where the church was planted in Philippi, that Paul would later write the book of Philippians, the letter to the church in Philippi. I want us to note that the generosity of Lydia was her time and her treasure. Now, I'm sure she used some of her talents and gifts. We don't see in the text exactly what those were, if she did any teaching or other aspects of serving. What we do know is that she gave and that she gave generously. She gave of her property. She opened up her home. She urged them to come. Now, this was something that kind of hit me hard when in the church, too often times when uh, the church has a building campaign or the, the church is trying to raise money for some amazing kingdom ministry, too often times church leaders and pastors are having to go to their people and ask for donations. I wonder if that's the heart behind what God would have in the financing and the resourcing of the kingdom ministries of the church. I'll give you a story of where that uh, is happening on campus. I was asked by a couple in the church, a very generous couple, well, what do you guys need over in the, in the outreach center? Man, there's a lot of stuff going on. We've heard about it. Well, every time we need ice, we have to cart, the, we have to track the things over here. We got to put ice in them. We got to track them all the way back for all the ministry that's done over there. They heard that. Their heart was moved. They had the heart of Lydia, and they made a donation to the church for an ice machine to go in next door, and that's happy. Yeah, praise God. You can give it up for generosity, Wendell. That's right. But I wonder how much the church could be resourced and financed for material expansion of the kingdom of God if more of our resourced Christians in the church were knocking down Pastor Bob's door. And it happens. A lot of the things you see on campus have come from individual donations whose hearts were moved. I'm, I'm not saying that's not happening. But I'm saying with the wealth and resources that we have as American Christians, what if more of us were like Lydia? What if more of us were like, hey, my chips are in, and, and you know what? Jesus is my Lord, and if he's my Lord, then he has authority over everything in my life, including my wealth. And I want to I I have that move the kingdom of God forward. It's when that happens, you begin to live a life that leaves a legacy. How many of you are, are thinking about legacy? That's a word that's been coming up a lot in, yeah, Jim. You start, you start to think about what am I leaving behind? Like, is, are my material possessions and, and wealth, is it going to get handed down to a generation? And it, we've seen how that usually works out, and by the third generation, it's all gone, right? It's typically the way it works. Or are we going to leverage, leverage the resources that God has given to us to leave a legacy of life change? I love, love our mission statement at this church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Don't you want people to look back at how you, you used your time and your talent and your treasure and say, there are disciples of Jesus Christ because Brian and Kim Hammonds gave generously of what God had given them. Insert your name there. <laughs> it leaves a ripple effect in this life, and it leaves a legacy as you move on to the next life. You know what a ripple effect is? You remember throwing rocks in the pond? 
right? It's a beautiful picture of what happens when you start to use your, t- your talent, your treasure, and your time for the kingdom of God. When you start to get the heart of the women in Acts, and, and Jesus being your Lord isn't something that just comes out of your lips, but it's something that flows out in your life. It's tangible. The third thing is, and we're going to move from generosity, and in the story of Rhoda, we're going to see that Rhoda doesn't, she's a servant girl, so she doesn't have a lot of uh, treasure. Apparently, she's got time. We don't know what talent she has, but you know what she has? She has joy. She's got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, her heart. Sorry, I've got the joy too. Say, come on, do you know the song? I heard Pastor Bob sang in a sermon, so I'm going to try to join in. We've got the joy, 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 joy down in our heart, down in our heart, down in our heart. We've got the joy, 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 joy down in our heart, down in our heart for how long? Tuesday. <laughs> Thank you. We're not going to go into the verse you offered up earlier, David. Sorry. But do you have that joy? Sometimes I don't. And I read a story like Rhoda's and I, and I get convicted, honestly. I can too easily look at joy and think, oh, well, that's a spiritual gift. Some Christians have it, some Christians don't. (laughs) No, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a gift of the Spirit. A thing that happens when Jesus becomes your Lord is that you know he's in charge. You know he's got authority over all of creation. You know that he holds and sustains the entire universe in his hands and by the word of his mouth. And so what am I worried about? Why do circumstances completely rock my world and rob me of my joy. Why does that happen? Rhoda is so excited and so overjoyed. I love the video with the crickets. She's so excited that she leaves a fugitive outside the door. Who knows? I mean, they could be coming after him, right? But she's not even thinking about that. Do you ever have so much joy in your heart where somebody who doesn't have Jesus as their Lord is looking at you and thinking, this person's a little off. Person's a little, they used to call them Jesus freaks. Uh, I wasn't a Christian in high school, but that was sort of the thing back in the 80s. There were Jesus freaks. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Shouldn't we be more like Rhoda? Shouldn't we be Jesus freaks? They're, they're huddled up. They're uh, all potentially going to get arrested too. They're hiding out. They're praying for Peter. They're praying for the movement of the, they're asking God for strength. They're probably scared. They're practicing an illegal religion. They're being called a cult, but she's got this joy. Our circumstances, most of us in this room, I don't want to minimize if you're going through something very difficult, but most of in this, in this room, our circumstances are not that bad, and yet we have so difficult time of holding on to that joy, 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 joy. Cheryl is not going to ask me to lead worship anytime soon. That is for sure, but... Um, I just, if, if I would give a way of confession, if it's safe in here for that, uh, that is something that um, really this preached to me before this even got preached to you when it came to joy. Far too often, I let joy, I let circumstances, I let my selfishness, I let my frustration, I let the enemy take it. I should not be doing that. I should live out inspired by the example of Grandma, Grandma Rupsom and Aunt Joyce and these women in Acts. So how do we do that? How do we get the joy down in our heart to stay? 
right? How do we live lives that are just outward expressions with our serving and with our giving? Well, Jesus gives a parable. It's one of my favorite parables. It's in Matthew 13. It's the, I believe it's probably the shortest parable because it's one verse. And we read it in the Jesus Storybook Bible to the kids last night. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again. Went and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. It's a good description, isn't it? Does it sound like a description of the women in Acts? You could ask yourself, does that sound like a description of my life? Is Jesus that hidden treasure? Is he, is he the buried treasure that when I found it, oh my, a bank account? Property? Who cares? I mean, yeah, I have to be responsible, but I mean, after being responsible, this is all God's. Like, I found the treasure. I want to give it all for Jesus. I want to put all the chips in to follow Jesus. I love that parable. And I saw it in these three women in the book of Acts as I studied these stories. I saw it. Well, you'll notice in the story of Lydia, you'll notice that God opened her heart to believe that she was worshiper of God, that she was in a prayer meeting when Paul came up on her. This could be descriptive of many of us in our past or in this room today. We're in the pews. We maybe read some scripture. We're, we're kind of, we're pursuing God, but that thing hasn't happened, that our heart hasn't been opened to the point where Jesus has become our Lord and that we have been willing to be generous and joyful with our entire lives, our hearts and our lives. My suggestion, my encouragement, my exhortation for you today is to continue to put yourself in this position. Continue to pursue, I love the prayer word of the month, pursue opportunities for God to come in and make yourself available for God to come in and explode your heart with this faith with the faith that the women in Acts had that turns your perspective, turns your view of all that you have and all that you own upside down on its head. It's a mystery. You know, God opened her heart. God is the initiator. We are the responder. As Christians, we teach and we preach and we understand that the scripture reveals that God is the initiator, that he saves us, that we don't save ourselves, but that we do respond, that our responsibility to make that salvation effectual is to respond and to believe. I was in a conversation early in 2008, shortly after I came to faith, my Aunt Joyce would talk, to, she would call me when she found out I got saved because as a good Southern Baptist, they were rejoicing with the angels in heaven, Mark got saved, this is awesome. So I would call her and uh, one of the times I called her, I said, you know, Everything has changed for me, Aunt Joyce, since I found Jesus. And she paused and she goes, darling, Jesus wasn't lost. You didn't find him behind the couch cushions. You didn't move the fridge and he was there with the lint balls. Okay, son? You were lost. Before Jesus finds us, before Jesus knocked Paul off the horse on the way to Damascus, before Jesus opened Lydia's heart in the book of Acts, we are lost. Every one of us lost. We're the lost sheep, but God is coming after us. Will you allow yourself to be found? 
if you're lost in here today, will you allow God to open your heart, knock you off your horse, and be found, and make him your Lord and your Savior? If you do, everything will change. Everything won't become easier. I can't promise that. It's not true, but everything will change in your life. Two people that have allowed this to happen on campus, uh, Rhonda and Michelle, are in the life change plan. There's a mentor for every life change plan participant and a participant. And so I'd like to point you now to this uh, video testimony so that you can see what's happening with that ministry. I first found out about Life Change Plan when I was part of Church at the Center when Mark called me to, to ask if I would be willing to be a mentor. Michelle, who was on the list of choices, and I jumped on it in a heartbeat. I first thought it was going to be overwhelming. I was eager to give it a shot. I have been thoroughly blessed um, in so many different ways. I especially love sharing God with somebody that's a lot more experienced, has a lot more time with experience in life and with Jesus, and I can learn and grow from that. I've already been writing questions down that I'm bringing to this class. I'm looking forward to that. And I will continue, even if I'm still here in Springfield, I will continue with midweek and Sunday night service, even after I'm um, not part of the life change plan. I am going to start a recovery house in my home area where I came from, um, because the need is so great. and. Um, even if I've been doing the research about if I need a not-for-profit ID and what the difference is and what that means legally and stuff. And uh, I guess if you guys want to stay tuned and see where that goes, that's going to be a good story. I'm just saying. Just being around positive people that are so um, successful in life, period, because this world is hard to get along with and hard to get along in. And I, I appreciate you guys and what you bring to um you know, my daily experiences. She has learned so much about um, taking responsibility for her past, moving forward from her past. I'm so that, use it. So that she can use that to pay it forward, so that she can use her past to grow closer to God. She's got a greater understanding of the people that she desires to help. So if I was gonna encourage someone to be a mentor, I would let them know it's not overwhelming. It's not overly time consuming. There is a one hour a week commitment to meet face to face. You can text, you can call, you can email in the mean, in the in between times to stay in touch. It doesn't take any kind of knowledge base. If you have a love for people, a love for God's people, and a love to share his love with them, that's all you need. God makes it happen. To someone that's considering the life change plan, suggest that they get on board as soon as possible and stick with it. Just stick with it. Dare them to see what God does.